The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. You're welcome back to The Hard Shoulder. Kieran Cuddy with you until seven o'clock, and I am joined in studio by Pascal Donahue. Now, as I said earlier, I mean, if people are expecting the usual. Um, political interview where we kind of get into a row about uh, the issues of the day. That is not what the Thursday interview it is, is about. Is about, I guess, the person uh, more than the politics. Um, and Pascal, if I have to start somewhere, I have to start with Harry Kane going to Bayern Munich. I've just heard, Kieran. Tough news. For I've you just today. heard. Tough so blow. it's a dark day. <laughs> now I did think the fourth bid from Bayern Munich would finally dislodge him. And fundamentally, Daniel Levy would not let Harry Kane go for free, Mm. uh, which, of course, is what will happen in a year's time. And I'm a lifelong Spurs fan. And this man managed to score 30 goals for a poor Spurs team in a poor season last year. So God knows what he's going to do in Bayern Munich. uh, But what it's going to mean for my beloved Spurs. Yeah, I just don't know. Well, last time we made money like this, of course, is when we sold Bale. And uh, we had a mixed dividend then and how we spent that money and didn't really get anybody true of the kind of long term quality we would have needed. And um, uh, I, I just hope now that Son is able to recover the form that he's had in mm. other seasons, which he lost. He lost last season. Will it be the season over Carlson? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I still will never forget his single goal season last year and his attempt to score a goal there in the Liverpool game, which was then ruled offside and they won the game in the last minute. Can he get out from under the shadow of that? Maybe he can, but look, if it was an expectation of success, I wouldn't support Mm. Spurs. So uh, it's uh, just part of us. Um, I saw when the news broke, um, how I saw it actually was Gary Lineker put up on Twitter that they were going to uh, record a kind of an emergency version of their new podcast uh, The Rest is Football Uh, You're a fan of this podcast I listened to this podcast for the first time yesterday and I thought it was great Uh, so um, I'm not sure I should be talking about other podcasts that are sport related given the news talk family (laughs) but but if if, if it's good enough for you to bring it up I will I I, uh, it's himself Micah Richardson and Alan Shearer and the first episode was just really funny. Uh, they were talking about the different transfers of the season mm. and it led to the three of them talking about the various transfers they had gone through and what it meant on a personal level. And it was really here interesting to hear Alan Shearer talk about it because, you know, he had to make that pivotal decision at the end of his time in Blackburn Rovers. Would he go to Newcastle or would he go to Man United? And uh, he decided to go to Man United, which I never knew. And then Kevin Keegan got one last meeting with him and managed to convince him to go to Newcastle. Mm. And Shearer apparently was about to buy Graeme Sunessa's house and pulled out of it at the last minute and ended up back in Tyneside. So it's a great podcast and uh, I will have to listen to their emergency broadcast shortly to hear their views now and what this means for Spurs. Um, so Gary Lineker has this stable of podcasts people mightn't realise they probably listen to some of them the rest is politics um, is one of them and the rest is history now uh, people who listen to this show will know I'm always banging on about the rest is history I absolutely love it um, as a podcast uh, you have been working your way through that back catalogue yeah. as well is history something you're inter- interested in? It, it is but I find it uh, hard to fit in the time to maintain a sustained interest to read books on history apart from uh, August and December. 
Uh, and I agree with you. I am uh, have come lately to the rest of history. And I think it is staggeringly good. Mm. I mean, I would be naturally sympathetic to it anyway, because uh, it's two centrist dads talking about stuff they're really <laughs> interested in. Uh, so I'm already sympathetic to it. But for any of your uh, listeners who haven't got their way to us, the, for example, the two-parter they did on the fall of Saigon, mm. the series they did on Watergate, the, I'm just picking the American ones, the, four, the I think it was a four-parter on Reagan. There was, yeah. Unbelievable. And then the focus, they did these really interesting ones on Cromwell, which they have a really big interest in. And then fascinating uh, ones on French presidents, and a really good four-parter again on the history of Portugal. Yes. So it's it's wonderful listening. And uh, two guys chatting about stuff they love and they're deep experts in. My God, if they do all of this themselves, Kieran, I'll be amazed. But yeah. I think they could do. Yeah, they, they obviously have a deep well of knowledge uh, that they're uh, drawing mm-hmm. on, but their, their ability to sound expert on so many different things. All right, leads me to suspect there must be other expert feet well, paddling I'm, below the surface m- of the water. M- m- I, uh, maybe they're backed up by a team of even greater experts, yes. but I'm not sure. Um, so there are two centrist ads as you describe them. Is that how you describe yourself? Your yes. politics? Yes. Definitely. Uh, uh, that's uh, how I, I want, see what myself. What is centrism then to you? Centrism is a belief that uh, the uh, uh, system and what I mean by a system is a mixture between uh, a democracy, a strong state and an open economy uh, that uh, it uh, has served our country well in the round uh, over many, many, many decades. It has many failings and many things we need to do better on but that is delivered by making the that centrist system work better as opposed to trying to overthrow us. Centrism uh, as a political philosophy, though, I mean, is it under threat more than it has been in your lifetime now? uh, It's certainly under pressure. Um, I think the moment it was under really fundamental threat, I'd probably pick two other points. Mm. I'd pick the aftermath of the global financial crisis, 2010 to 2013 and 14. And then the period from 2016 to 2017 to 2018, uh, that being the period that began with the election of Donald Trump and Brexit and the aftermath of that, for me, were the two moments in which the threat certainly felt really, really, really acute. At the moment, uh, it's definitely uh, under pressure. There's no Mm. doubt about that. Uh, reason being, uh, we could go into all of the different uh, difficulties that you and I have debated many other points yeah. in relation to housing, our health service, inflation and so on. And those are really big challenges uh, for us. But but very broadly, leaving those day-to-day issues aside, I think centrism and making the case for the centre in political politics has become for many people the same thing as making the case for the status quo. Yes, and they are different things, but I certainly accept that for many of your listeners, when I talk about, you know, the the, the overall system, the order of things, it sounds like I'm making the, making the case for conservatism. I'm making the case for conserving a model that for many doesn't deliver for them in the way they would want. Mm. And I've seen them being two really different things. Was, 
what was your political philosophy as a teenager or someone in their twenties? Oh God, I didn't have one. Oh, but I mean, were you interested in politics? I was slightly interested in it. I was more interested in history, actually, than yeah. I was in politics. And I'm, I hope I'm not going to disappoint you, Kieran. But I, I'm not one of these teenagers or young adults that dreamt of being minister for finance or Taoiseach or anything <laughs> at all like that. I'd, I'd no such dream at all. I guess the, the feelings I had from reading and studying history and listening to current affairs, probably the strongest feeling that I had is that Europe and the idea of Europe, I felt was something really powerful and good. But as a young person, I couldn't quite define what that was. But that was the strongest feeling I had. The biggest influence in my political life uh, by a country mile is the financial crisis and what happened during that period and what happened afterwards, which uh, to this day is is definitely the defining influence on my outlook on politics and my views on the economy. So had you political role models then? You probably didn't growing up. Not who, until, who, not who until a lot later in life. So I mean, who were your role models then? Who did you adopt as political role models? So when I was starting off, when I was like reading a lot about history, yeah. uh, the people who would have interested me at that point uh, would have been uh, American politicians like FDR and LBJ, Lyndon Bain Johnson. Yeah. Uh, found them really, really interesting figures uh, in terms of uh, uh, European uh, politics and within the UK. Um, it would have been uh, kind of figures of people like Dennis Healy, um, who I came across his biography really by chance as a as a kind of a history interested kind of young 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 man, and he was a a chancellor of the Exchequer for the Labour Party in the nineteen seventies mm. when the UK needed help from the IMF, and I found kind of figures like that, and then German and French politicians like Adenauer. Uh, uh, fascinating, uh, just unbelievably interesting, uh, and uh, interesting political role models and more contemporary ones came a lot later. Yeah, but so you worked in kind of the sales side of Procter and Gamble I did. Um, before politics, but I mean that that was hardly was that your ambition? Uh, no, I mean, I mean no, nobody really dr- dreams of being a salesperson for Procter and Gamble as a well, starry-eyed I, teenager. It's certainly not where you they? start. It's certainly, no, <laughs> I, I, I wasn't what I was dreaming of at that point. And I did a, I did a, a couple of internships with Procter and Gamble, and uh, ended up working for them. And I spent my first couple of years uh, here on uh, selling uh, Fairy Liquid and Sunny Delight. You good salesperson? I was then. Yeah, I'd still yeah. be doing it now if I wasn't doing this. Yeah. And I did it uh, for a long time with P&G and it was the kind of, the company was an amazing experience. And I do think there is a, a, a certain great dignity in commercial roles being done well. And yeah. I really enjoyed doing that work. And I, when I moved over to the UK, I moved over with, uh, in the, uh, late 1990s with all my all my belongings in a suitcase right into Heathrow Airport with, uh, to meet uh, who then became my flatmate for five years and it was the kind of my growing up really happened over there yeah. and doing a job and becoming independent. What frustrates you about the political system you work in most? Uh, the reality that uh, you uh, can overestimate what you can do in the short term Mm. but underestimate what you can achieve in the long term. So what frustrates me uh, is that you 
trying to respond back to issues that we all know are burning. You make a decision, decide to spend money uh, of the country, you change tax rates, you change a policy, and the response to us always takes longer than you want, always. And it goes back to what you and I were talking about earlier on. If you're in a small open economy, no matter how much a government wants to do something, if you operate inside certain democratic rules, if you make a decision, mm. a lot of the time it takes some time for that decision to have an impact. Uh, so that is, I wouldn't be human if I wasn't to acknowledge uh, that is um, an, a, an abiding frustration. Uh, but on the other hand, I'm incredibly optimistic and that has to fuel you to keep at it and uh, keep driving away in the expectation that the, the, the decision will have a positive impact. It's just a time frame that matters. Yeah, no decision would be universally positive. There'll always be people on the, the other side of the line, you know. Um, and how do you deal with that? Does that, does, that, do, do, does that reality ever provide kind of nagging doubts? Or are you good to compartmentalise and look at it from the kind of the bigger picture? So I am, I try to be uh, pretty good. I keep compartmentalising it from my private life. Uh, but I think if anybody, uh, particularly if you are privileged to hold an office of state, says that they are making decisions from the perspective of complete certainty, mm. that's risky, if not dangerous. Uh, you have to be always <clears throat> humble about what you don't know and recognise that uncertainty is more than ever a feature, particularly of economic life. So I always have, um, if not doubts, I'm always aware of the alternatives and the consequences of the decision that I make. And certainly during the two years of COVID, uh, that certainly weighed on me in a, in a, in a real way. Uh, because by some way, now that was the, the most demanding period for all of us. Yeah. Uh, when you were trying to make those decisions where they, every decision was such a, such a tight call. Yeah. And you knew when it came to relaxing restrictions that there would be people who would contract COVID. Yes, is the reality die. of it. You would hope not to die, yeah. uh, particularly as we got into the latter part of it. But a feature of changing the public health regulations was that you increased the ability of the yeah. disease to travel. And, and uh, did that, because I, I don't want to kind of relitigate those decisions, sure. um, uh, but did that, was, I don't want to ask, it kind of seems tried to kind of ask, did that cause sleepless nights? But how do you approach a, de a decision like that, where you know someone, uh, that there's going to be someone walking down the main street in Ennis, who, if the restrictions were to be left as they were, would be walking down the main street and then is perfectly healthy in a month's time. If you relax them, they will have COVID. Yeah. So uh, there was two different ways in which I really felt the, uh, the tension that you're referring to there. The first one is, and I will come back to the example you've given, is all the economic decisions that I was involved in making. Uh, because at that time, uh, I was in uh, also in a workplace that was affected by COVID. So there was very few of us in the building. We were making decisions uh, digitally, like any other workplace, mm. and making 
like decisions about people's uh, work lives, their jobs, their prospects and how to save them that I knew at the time were momentous. And like, for example, Kieran, like I will never forget the time I was sitting in my office and a uh, my secretary general uh, came in to me to say that in a week's time, we believed we'd probably have 640,000 people unemployed. And the challenge we were going to face is that uh, because the Department of Social Protection and our intro offices are workplaces like any other, yeah. COVID was going to happen there. And our ability to look after those people was going to be really reduced because COVID would be present mm. on those we needed. Uh, and dealing with all of that, which then led to the pandemic unemployment payment and the employment wage subsidy scheme, is a few months that uh, were in which I really felt uh, the the responsibility of what I was doing. And then you're right, every time we were making decisions on public health regulations, uh, all of us who were involved on the COVID Cabinet Subcommittee knew what the impact could be. And on one hand, what we were trying to do was weigh up the risk that could be created by COVID uh, transmitting more within our, our health. But on the other hand, recognising that we couldn't keep things in an up, in a in an exceptional state indefinitely. Mm. And that was a, a, a phenomenally demanding ethical challenge before the vaccination programme began. And, you know, I go back to what I was saying about uncertainty and about how certainty can actually at times even be dangerous. Yeah. We were really all grappling with that. And that was... Uh, as you'll, you'll remember and your listeners will remember just how testing it was. And what informs your ethical compass? Is it religion? So my ethical con- compass definitely has a, um, uh, a religious context to it. Uh, and uh, uh, I, my views on how to make decisions are certainly informed by an awareness of the responsibility that I have Mm. towards others and then the challenge of trying to reconcile that responsibility, which is in the here and now, to the longer term set of responsibilities that I have as well. And the things that guide that then are definitely a sense of of that ethical responsibility that is there and then try to reconcile that, Kieran, with a sense of history and a sense of what has happened at other points in which countries or economies have confronted decisions, such as the ones we're discussing. Um, so we've come a long way from Harry Kane, haven't we? We've come a long, long way from Harry Kane, Harry actually. Kane and Bayern Munich. Uh, and Bayern Munich. Um, we are almost out of time. Um, so listen, before we go then, given you say this is the time of year where you can read a few books, have you any book recommendations? Oh my God. You gave me a terrible book recommendation. Oh, what was that? Um, it was, I can't even remember the name of it. Was um, that bad? There was, it, it, it read, the book read like there was all these text messages over and back. Um, oh, I remember that. That was the crime novel. Yeah. Uh, it was terrible. Uh, it don't don't even that. try and remember the name in case, in case, God forbid, somebody actually goes and buys it. Oh my and God. It. I really committed to no, sin that really, time. really, really bad. I? Yeah. Uh, so I will, uh, let me think. I'll pick one book I have read. Okay. Read 
and I'll pick one book I haven't read, but okay. I think it's going to be great. So I've just read an amazing uh, crime thriller uh, written by an American writer called Dennis Lehan that's called Small Mercies. Okay. And it is about a, um, a Irish-American mother called uh, Mary Pad Hennessy who's growing up in the Southie district in Boston at a time in which the busing conflict is breaking out, mm. which were all the issues about whether you would bus African-Americans into other schools. Yeah. And she's getting involved to go on one such protest and her teenage daughter doesn't come home one night and goes missing. Okay. That's about what happens afterwards. And I couldn't put it down. What's it called? Uh, Small Mercies. Small Mercies. Um, and then I guess actually, why should I recommend a book that I haven't read? The one other one that I recommend is The Lockup by John Banville. Okay. Which is a set of crime novels set in Dublin in the 1950s featuring a weary pathologist called I didn't Quirk. like it. Did you not like us? I found it kind of miserable, actually. Did you really? Yeah, I really. Have you read the other ones? I really did. Have you read Snow? Yeah. The one that went before us? Yeah, I didn't like that either. But why did you read? Why uh, did you, you know read what? the lockup then if you didn't uh, like Snow? It, it, it'll annoy him, uh, but I, Banville, Banville's not for me, Minister. Oh, well, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big fan and maybe the yeah. listener will have to read and make up yeah. their mind as okay. to whether they're Cudahy or Donoghue All when it right. comes to Banville. Uh, Minister for Public Expenditure, Pascal Donoghue. Minister, thanks a million. Thanks, uh, Enjoy the opening weekend of the Premier League for what it's worth. Without Harry Kane, uh, it turns out... It- the Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cudahy with Nissan. Weekdays from four on News Talk.